0: Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike your host, and this is part two of our interview with Paco Chiarici. In this episode, he chats about the documentary he produced and created called Speed and Angels, and also his new novel, Lines of the Sky. I also want to thank our sponsor, Laco Watchers, who were one of the original companies to produce pilot watches for the Luftwaffe during World War II. They produce both A and B dial watches in different sizes to suit all tastes, which adopt the look of times gone by but still satisfy modern demands. You can check out all their models and products via www.laco.d. Thank you.
1: Um, yeah, a couple of things Yeah, because
0: you mentioned uh, some operations and conflicts, but how many were you actually involved with and would you say the A6 was capable at this point in time?
1: Yeah, so I flew in Southern Watch, which was um, it was the sort of police um, police action that was taken after you know the conclusion of the first Gulf War. Uh, there were a lot of restrictions placed on Saddam Hussein, and then everybody basically left, uh, and he began violating them almost immediately. Um, so we, uh, when I left on my first deployment. Uh, we were emergency recalled to the ship from uh, port call in, in, um, in uh, Busan, Korea, and then steamed right through a Category 5 typhoon on the, on the Ranger trying to get on station. Um, and so I flew in Southern Watch uh, and then I flew in uh, Restore Hope, which was the, uh, the operation to protect the United Nations Relief Forces in Somalia. Um, And we were the first ship on station for both Restore Watch and I think Restore Hope maybe. Um, But yeah, at the the time, you know, it it was – the A6 was just – this was in 93 Mm -hmm. and the the A6 eventually went away. I think in 96 was the last flying squadron um, that was decommissioned. So it was a pretty quick decommissioning process. You know, once they they were sort of thinking about – you know, when I was when I was flying the airplane, everybody thought the A12 was going to come out, which would have been the super stealthy um, follow-on to the A6. Um, and then there was some th- that that was that program was um, cut out. Then there was some talk about the A6F, which would have been, you know, a much more digital version of the Intruder with bigger engines, but it still was the same airplane. So it was yeah. still this. Uh, You know, this very unsurvivable, unstealthy airplane. Um, And I think wisely, unfortunately, wisely, that plane uh, was also uh, axed from the planning process. So we didn't know. Like when I was on my first deployment uh, flying the A-6, we didn't really know that the entire community was basically three years away from going away. We had no idea. We still felt very much in the mix. You know, the A-12 was going away. um, But we – we knew or we believed that something else was going to take its place. Uh, so we still felt very relevant um, and actually um, very capable in terms of flying in, in Southern Watch and in, in flying for Restore Hope. And it, our, our primary mission Restore Hope was to uh, – we, we strapped 500-pound bombs, laser-guided bombs on the airplanes. Um, and the threat was um, these – uh, cars that were called are called technicals. They're just like a, a Toyota pickup truck with a, you know, 50 caliber machine gun strapped to it. Um, they're very common in the Middle East and, and in Africa. Um, and these warlords, uh, the, you know, the government in Somalia had failed, and so these warlords are taking over and they're stealing everybody's food. Um, so we'd we'd be flying over country and we'd see farm fields filled with water and crops, but nobody was tending to them um, because. Why would you? As soon as you harvested their crops, the warlord would pull up and and kill you and take your food, or or at least take your food. So the UN was coming in with C 130s and and trying to deliver food to the the populace, and the warlords were taking that food as well. So our job was to provide air cover. Um which I thought, you know, we were very well suited to. um, But again, you know, that the mission of the airplane uh, it basically went away it went you know we, we talked about it a little bit earlier but you know it was heavy or me, medium weight bomb you know lots of bombs on target to precision strike and then all of a sudden in the early 90s these gps bombs started coming out and you didn't need a laser anymore to designate targets you know you could put you could type in a coordinate uh and you could put a bomb through somebody's window um so the plane basically just Its capabilities were not able to evolve with the times. Yeah, it had its its day, I think, uh, yeah, by that Yeah, and it's a good run. It was, you know, 40 years or so. That's not bad. That's not bad bad at all.
0: all. It's no B-52, but, you know. (laughs) That thing is going to go on forever. (laughs) I agree. But, yeah, so before we wrap up uh, the A6 portion of the interview, uh, do you have any maybe a memorable story to share with us and how long did you actually spend on the A6?
1: I spent, uh, including the rag, um, three and a half years. So two and a half years in my fleet squadron. Um, I, I think, um, you know, my, my Kuwaiti story, uh, was probably the most memorable single flight. The, the other most memorable thing that happened to me was before my, my night landings, my very first night landing ever. Um, you may have heard the story already, but it's still one of my favorites. It's, uh, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, but, the first night landing that a pilot does happens in his fleet squadron or a fleet airplane that he's going to fly. Um, so we come to this with zero experience. It's terrifying. There's nothing fun or or gratifying about landing a a fighter on an aircraft carrier at night. Um, but it's still, you know, you're, again, you're 22, 23 years old, you are still bulletproof. Um, and so my very first one I was on the carrier, uh, Waiting for my plane and the plan was for my plane uh, Which was currently with another student flying around doing his six landings Uh, When he finished his last landing they would chain it to the flight deck uh, Keep the engines running the pilot would climb out I'd climb in then the navigator would climb out and my navigator would climb in and they'd pump us full of gas again And uh, off we'd go and again the engines would be running the whole time. It's called a hot switch Um, so uh, I went up to flight deck control and uh, I'll never forget, I'm sitting in flight deck control and I'm watching the uh, camera that shows the plane coming into land and in the last stages. And I'm leaning over and I'm tightening, tightening up my chest strap. And as the plane touches down, I can see it rolling out in the landing area through the window in flight deck control. And as I'm like sort of straightening up and getting ready to go, all of a sudden, two, the two crew members eject and the plane Angles towards the, uh, the uh, bow a little bit and <laughs> yeah, and uh, it screeches along the deck and it crashes into three hornets and then it flips overboard. And it takes – one of the hornets broke through all its chains, spun all the way around and then flipped over with it. And uh, one of the other ones flipped around but it didn't go over. And I'm standing there with my hand on my chest strap looking out the window like my jaw must have been on the ground thinking holy shit my plane <laughs> just went into the water of the pacific ocean uh, so yeah that was uh, i didn't fly that night obviously um but, uh, we did. we flew the next day, <laughs> right back at it. yeah, it is I think other than the Kuwaiti flight, it's like it is the most traumatic and memorable uh event that happened to me, uh you know, almost in naval aviation because that was my jet, I was supposed to jump in that jet, and if that hook and what had happened was the hook failed, mm-hmm. you know the metal uh, just snapped, and uh, um you know. There was nothing that the air crew could have done. They couldn't have kept flying. They were too slow to fly and too fast to stop on the flight deck. So they mm. wisely ejected out of the airplane and bam, you know, almost $300 million worth of uh, assets just went right into the ocean. Well, certainly, luck was on your side that day then. that's
0: That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, so it sounds like you had an absolutely wonderful time on the A6. But uh, yeah, just to move on, because I do want to chat about uh, a bit about your F14 time. But how did you eventually get your dream jet?
1: Yeah, so I uh, I was in the first squadron to get decommissioned, and we we knew we were getting decommissioned when we returned from this deployment. So it wasn't a big surprise. I had already been we, the ranger. Uh, air wing air wing two that i was in was a very unique and one of the last of the old air wings we had no f-18s on board it was an older you know oil burning ship uh we had two a6 squadrons and two f-14 squadrons and i knew that when i finished with va-155 which was my first fleet squadron i was just going to roll right over into va-145 and it was Mm -hmm. it was going to be an almost seamless transition So that was I think in March or April of 93 and I rolled right into 145 as planned and almost the day I got there, um, we got word that uh, at the end of the fiscal year, which was in September, uh, just a few months away va 145 was also going to get decommissioned now that was a surprise so you know as soon as i got to va 155 we knew our our clock was ticking and that's fine we uh, we were going to deal with it but you know we got to 145 and thinking i had this whole career ahead of me flying a6s um you know the squadrons getting decommissioned and not only that they're really accelerating the decommissioning process of all, all a6 squadrons um and so everybody was now trying to scramble and, and find a, a, a place to go. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, in retrospect, amazing to me that, you know, some master planner in the Pentagon didn't have a, a, a spot for all of us. But we were basically left uh, to our own resources to oh, okay. to find a, a new home. Um, and, uh, you know, for me. It was now a second opportunity to go fly the F-14. It's very rare in the Navy to – or at least at the time to change communities. Uh, If you're an A-6 guy, you're generally an A-6 guy for life. Um, And uh, so all of a sudden – you know, there's some guys going to fly Hornets. There's some guys that loved Woodby Island, so they wanted to go fly the Prowler, the EA6B, and you know, a variety of different things. So the world was now wide open again. Um, and I put in this big package, uh, probably a hundred-page package of everything I'd done, and I got endorsements from my carrier. Uh, I'm sorry, the commander of the air group, and uh, and the F-14 squadron COs. And you know, I put this big package, submitted it to the transition board, and uh, I was approved and it was a huge day it was really a it felt like a, a massive victory for me
0: oh, so yeah
1: so what was yeah. it like to fly and um, come
0: especially coming from the a6 you now have reheat out your exposal or afterburner
1: what was this like yeah um it was so you know the rag is about a year long and it was like a year-long christmas <laughs> <laughs> i felt like every day i went to work it was like christmas and again not that i didn't love the a6 or learned to love the a6 but this was the plane I'd really always imagined and dreamt of flying um, and the community that, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed and, and wanted to be a part of. Um, and the plane, just the plane was just so much fun. It was, it was just incredible to have all that thrust. And I flew the A, uh, which was, you know, in the fighter world, the A is not necessarily regarded as such an incredible fighter because it doesn't have enough thrust. But for me, coming from the A6, it was – every day was Christmas. It was wonderful.
0: Yeah, um, I would love to ch- chat to you more about the F-14. Maybe we can get you on for uh, to do a separate podcast on that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so how many hours sure. did you get on the F-14 and did you enjoy your time on it?
1: Yeah, I got, let's see. So even even though I only flew the A6 for two and a half years, I got, uh, let's see, about 700 hours in that. And then in the F-14, I got um, basically the same, like maybe plus or minus 100 hours in the F-14. And I flew it for three years total. Um and yes, I mean I enjoyed it. Uh, I was always, I was fortunate in my Navy career in that I was always busy. I was always flying. Uh, you know, I, I know that um, in recent times there have been some some lulls uh, in the operational deployments, or people when they come back from deployments they don't get to fly. I was always flying. Um, I flew my butt off. So. I was active uh, I'm sorry, I was in a fleet squadron for two years after I um, got to the F-14, and um, I was away from home for 18 of the, 18 months out of those two years. so we were flying a lot.
0: Uh, the reason I know about yourself is because I watched your brilliant documentary a uh, few years ago now called Speed and Angels. So we we'll yeah. have to talk about that. Where did the idea come from and how were you involved in it?
1: Sure. Um, I, uh, so uh, I finished flying the F 14. I got off active duty. I got, um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, long stories involved in that. Um, it was a very painful and torturous decision, but I had, decided to leave active duty Navy and go fly for the airlines. And I thought I was done. Um, But, you know, uh, it was naval aviation and flying those jets was just such a deeply ingrained part of me. And I I don't think I really fully realized that. A few months after I got off active duty, a friend of mine um, called me up and said, hey, I'm in the reserve unit. Uh, flying F-5s and, and we are having a board. Are you, are you interested in joining as a reservist? And man, I couldn't put my package in fast enough. I was like, absolutely. So I joined this squadron and um, you know, I learned to, to become an adversary pilot, which is a, a whole different story. Um, but uh, about halfway through that tour, and I was there for 10 years as a reservist. I could see the end coming. You know, was, I've been doing flying in the Navy for 15 years now, between active and reserves, and I had maybe five or six more years. Um, and I had begun doing a lot of writing. At, I, I've I was a Navy pilot for 20 years. I like to say, but I've been a writer my whole life. I've always have uh, always been involved in storytelling, mm-hmm. and um, I've been doing a lot of writing and and trying to figure out the right way to tell the story of naval aviation. And you know, to that time. At that time, really, there was Top Gun, which, you know, is which is such a boon and a curse for to naval aviation. It's, you know, <laughs> it's it's a it's a wonderful thing and a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only other really great Navy story that I had ever read was this thing called Flight of the Intruder, um, which, you know, Stephen Kuhn's great book really, uh, you know, was obviously about uh, A6s. Um, and that was it. Um, so I had written a few screenplays and trying to, you know, figure out how to tell this story in a way that, that made me proud to tell it, um, and would make the people involved in it sort of proud that they were involved in it. Um, and I, I saw a surfing documentary once and it just completely opened my eyes to, to how I wanted to tell a naval aviation story. Um, I wanted to be able to put people in the cockpit you know, not just to have one of those traditional, you know, military channel documentaries like, you know, the five inch rocket comes out of the <laughs> 700 miles. an hour. You know, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make it a very much of an experiential story um, where the viewer felt like they were part of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that kernel of an idea, I approached um, – a good friend of mine who lived up in San Francisco. I, I live in the Bay Area here in, in California, and she is a obviously a woman, uh, a documentarian, and uh, a California resident. So those three things are not necessarily favorable to you know the military. There, mm-hmm. that that's not her demographic. And I pitched her on the idea, and she was like, you know, it's not my world. It's not my. I do stories about you know. I do completely different stories that that don't live in this world at all. Um, and I convinced her to come out with me to my reserve unit in Fallon. And the original concept was to make a documentary about my squadron, about dogfighting, and sort of the last vestiges of you know this this world of aerial combat that um, is barely hanging on. But we're we're the guys that are really good at it, and what we do is really cool, and people should know about it. Um, and so she did and she came out and she fell in love with the community, with the people, with the planes. We managed to get uh, some cameras up in airplanes and get some phenomenal footage. And we made a sizzle reel, which is like a 12-minute um, short film called Last of the Dogfighters. You may have seen – I don't know if you've seen that, but that's really fun actually. No, I haven't. Known. Um, yeah, yeah. You should uh, – check it out on youtube last of the dog fighters um and it's it was my concept my original concept for this documentary and we managed to do it i raised a bunch of money i got permission from the navy official permission um although there's some long stories in that but um we started filming the documentary and, and this director her name is peyton um we were in key west where we were um going to be fighting against these young F-14 Rag students. And Peyton was riding in the van from the the hotel to the airport with these young students. And she's just, you know, she always had her camera with her and and she's just talking to them. And they are so excited and so exciting. And their their life is so much more exciting to watch and to experience yeah. than the old the old, you know, aerial combat uh, saints that are flying the f Fives—they were so electric and so vibrant um, mm-hmm. that she managed to convince me to pivot the film from the last of the dogfighters to um, Speed and Angels to this story about the last two F-14 students uh, and their lives and their, you know, and what happens to them as they they go through the rag as these young sort of puppies and they come out of it fairly seasoned and more serious so this is a one year of tremendous growth and danger and then unbeknownst to us when we were filming but they delivered so much more to us once they had finished their training each of them have such dramatic uh, post training stories that you know we we initially thought the documentary would take us 18 months and it took 5 years you know from From conception to boom, we're done, and it's distribution. Um, So uh, it turned into a far better story, um, and I'm glad that it did. Uh, And both those kids are, you know, they're still very close friends of mine. Um, But it's it, it it as most things are, you know, when they're when they're live and you watch them evolve, it we we were just along for the ride for a lot of it, you know, and it it turned into something incredible.
0: Yeah, it was, it's a brilliant documentary, and uh, the aerial footage is absolutely incredible. But, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. How did you manage to coordinate this? I mean, it seemed it probably, yeah. it, as you say, five years, so it must have took some yeah.
1: planning. Uh, it was – It was. Um, so the actual filming was maybe about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, So there's two separate departments in the Navy that are involved with um, – with a production. Uh, there's the documentary division where, you, you know, you can go talk to people uh, and, you know, you get access to certain things. And then there's the sort of Hollywood side of it where you actually take military assets that are used, obviously, for other things and then dedicate them solely for the production of, you know, Top Gun or, you know, JAG TV show or a documentary called Speed and Angels. Um I got permission from the Navy almost instantly to do the documentary portion, which meant that you know I cut Peyton loose with her camera, and she would run around and interview people. And we went all over. We went to, you know, I think I mentioned Key West. We were in Fallon. We were on an aircraft carrier multiple times. So, you know, we we were all over the place talking to these kids as they were going through their experiences. And then on the flip side, um, getting back to the experiential, wanting the viewer to feel like they're in the cockpit, um, and that was what I had sold to my investors you know, we're going to get the most amazing aerial footage you've ever seen. Um, I was banging my head against the wall for about two years, literally just no after no, after no, after no. And, you know, repeatedly I would get a no. And then I'd say, well, do you mind if I talk to your, you know, superior? Yeah. Uh, and it was awkward for me because I was not only a reservist, I was an active reservist. I was still flying and drilling. So I'm still a commander or Lieutenant commander in the Navy. Um, but I'm a, I was—I would call these people and I'd say, hey, this is who I am, but I'm calling you as a producer of a documentary. So, you know, I know this is a weird thing, but just try to think of me as, as not a Navy person right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would obviously use my inside knowledge of the Navy to, uh, to be able to navigate these corridors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so anyway, I, I eventually through – much, much, um, begging and pleading worked my way all the way up to the chief of Naval air forces. And it took say another six months before I was actually able to mesh our schedules. And by mesh our schedules, I mean like get five minutes on his schedule where I could come in and, and beg him for some, some time that we were gonna have to pay for it. It's not like he was going to give it to me for free. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, I mean, it was free in the sense that he he didn't get the money. When we wrote a check for all this, it went to the Department of Treasury. So the Navy was actually losing this time, mm-hmm. uh, which made it even more painful for them. Um, and so I, I had this whole thing choreographed. Uh, you know I'll, Pages upon pages of exactly how this is going to go and we're going to have an airplane and we're going to have cameras on top of the mountains and, you know, it's going to take five days. We're going to need four F-14s and four F-5s and I, I mean it was like a incredible pitch detailed briefing and I had to give it to his chief of staff. And then he's like, all right, man, you come in tomorrow and give it to the admiral. That's that's your job. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> um And I walked in and I sort of gave the admiral. I I let him see the sizzle reel, the twelve-minute sizzle reel, and I told him what the concept was. And I showed him the briefing cards, and I gave him sort of just a general sense of what we were trying to do. And he looked at me and he was like, "I like it. Let's do it." And that was it. You know, it took me two and a half years to get in front of this man. Oh my god, I felt like just going out. It was like eleven in the morning. I felt out and going out and having some drinks. You know, and and. The time pressure was enormous because obviously we had been filming these F 14 students. And this was now the spring of 2006, and the F 14 was going away in six months. It yeah. was, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of time to get permission to fly, uh, you know, the F 14 around because it was gone. It was going to be gone. And I had been banging my head against this wall for two and a half years. And finally it happened. And, you know, uh, six weeks later, um, Uh, The last F-14 deployment to Navy Fallon. We flew in uh, this specially modified Learjet that had uh, periscopes at the top and the bottom with HD cameras rigged to them uh, for all the air-to-air scenes. And then uh, we had these two um, HD cams with like eight-foot lenses. I mean just incredibly massive lenses that you could – practically film somebody on the moon with uh that we put on top of a a fairview peak of this mountain in in fallon and we would film the ground to air sequences uh from that so we basically did all the same maneuvers from the air and did air to air and then did them on the ground as well uh to get that different perspective and then we wired up all the uh the pilots with uh, cameras inside the cockpits Um, We weren't able to put cameras on the outside of the cockpit because it it would just – in terms of getting permission for that, it was just too onerous. But we got incredible footage on the inside of the cockpits. Um, And then the the way we depicted the dogfights, which seemed to be like a seamless thing, was we would – take these audio clippings from the actual dogfight and then we would film interior, exterior, aerial, ground to kind of clip it together into a logical-looking dogfight. And I think, I believe it came out pretty well. Yeah, it's a a stunning
0: documentary and it's a credit to you and the team how it came out because... Uh, yeah, I remember when I came uh, across it for the first time. I was like, "What well, has anyone heard of this before?" And everyone, I was last to know, I think. But it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, tell our viewers where we can actually find uh, this online to watch.
1: Yeah, for sure, uh, it's available. If you have Amazon, I think it's available on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure about. You know, I, I, I own the rights to Speed Angels and I made it available to all territories. I believe that it's available in UK as well. Um, but if, that's, if that doesn't work on Amazon Prime, then um, iTunes for sure works globally, uh, all territories. So
0: let's talk about something that's happened to you recently. You brought out a new book. It's called Light in the yeah. Sky. Uh, tell yes. us about this because it it's – I've read a couple of excerpts you sent me, and it's it's stunning already.
1: Ah, thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I've been writer my whole life, um, and much the same as I did with um, Speed and Angels, what I wanted to do with Lines of the Sky was write a thriller. It's a military thriller, a naval aviation military thriller. Um, but I really, really wanted to bring the reader with me on this journey. Uh, and um, we start off... Uh, similar to Speed and Angels in the training. Uh, and so you go on the journey with these young um, young students as they go through all the same challenges that Jay and Megan did in, in um, Speed and Angels. But now you're feeling it. You really feel it. And as a reader, I think you can get even more in-depth to this, the fears and the passions and the excitement and the drama and the danger of this world. Um And as they're going through that, and again, going through the same journey that Jay and Megan did, you know, that you show up and and you just feel like you're going to be flying a sports car and your life is nothing but fun and and speed. Uh, You know, you you go through these things that that season you and make you uh, realize that, you know, once you hit the fleet, it's a real world out there. Uh, There's real bombs and real missiles and real adversaries that have their own training and are intent on pursuing their own uh goals and and would be perfectly happy to shoot you down if you get in their way um and so as these kids are going through their training uh there's this constant drumbeat of this global situation that's that's uh happening in the background and it's deals with uh, the chinese aggression in the south china sea and um it it's building in intensity as the kids are getting uh, through their training. And obviously it comes to a peak and the crescendo is these two things meet at the end in the dramatic climax. Um, and, uh, one, one of the things that always, uh, struck me about the way we go through training and, and there's, it's really inevitable, but, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, how long did it take you to begin training till you're combat ready? Uh, and that's, technically the case you know when you finish the rag you're technically combat ready but you're so far from being proficient you know you've done everything a couple times um but you're you're not necessarily good you know it's <laughs> a different story yeah <laughs> oh yeah you're not necessarily good you're still sort of fumbling around to find the right switch and and in extremis you know you don't really know how you're going to act um but as it happens so frequently you can leave the squadron and 10 days later, like Jay and Speed and Angels, you are in no shit combat where people are shooting at you and you're trying to execute your mission and fire weapons and not kill anybody that you're not supposed to kill. Mm -hmm. And it's real. And you go, you know, from a training environment to an actual combat environment in a matter of days. Um, So that's, I, I love that story and that intensity. And I brought that uh, to the novel and you know, I use the real training and then the real world threat of the Chinese and the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea and and build this sort of Crescendo at the end where the students come out and they're thrown right into the mix mm-hmm.
0: So how much of the novel is based on fact or experiences you've had yourself? <laughs>
1: almost all of it. Uh, yeah, okay. almost all of it. I've, yeah, I would say uh, You know everything in the novel is derived from either something that happened or something that it you know happened to somebody else something happened to me or something that uh, somebody else and it's obviously fictionalized and and enhanced to make it a little bit more uh thrilling mm-hmm. but you know i mean everything down, down to the um the the inciting incidents for the the dramatic final climactic combat scene um i mean i don't want to give it away too much but uh, a good friend of mine was uh, an s three pilot and um, when uh, when he was off the off Taiwan many, many years ago, uh, he thought he was in the process of uh, an exercise trying to find a U.S. submarine uh, and so you know he he and his crew were dropping sonobuoys and tracking this submarine and feeling very excited that they were finally able to track this u s submarine which they, they weren 't actually very good at doing. Well, it turns out they were tracking a Chinese submarine and doing such a good job that they scared the Chinese submarine captain uh, who radioed back to mainland China. Uh, the Chinese launched a number of fighters. Uh, the Navy saw the fighters launching and j- launched a number of their fighters. And all of a sudden you have this you know, cataclysmic <laughs> cloud of fighters coming at each other and nobody really knows that it all began uh, with an accident. Uh, obviously, uh, in the real world, that – um that incident was uh diffused by calmer heads but in, in my book i just use that story and this story just always blew me away but i use that story uh and i fictionalize it to to bring the the climactic battle sequence into into being
0: yeah i mean it's uh, very enticing that's for sure but uh, how long did the book actually take you to write and how different is it writing uh, fiction to nonfiction?
1: yeah uh, two great questions uh the book, uh, took me probably five years to write. Right. Um, that's a long time. Uh, but it, uh, it, it's for me anyway, it was very difficult and different writing nonfiction from fiction. I'm sorry, fiction from nonfiction. Uh, I'd written a ton of, um, nonfiction, a bunch of articles and, and, um, I was editor for uh, fighter Suite for a long time. Uh, so it was, uh, my first foray into really long form fiction, but it was really that that's what I want to do. That's my dream. I want to keep doing that. Um, and I wanted to do it right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can, you can bang something out pretty easily, but I really wanted to do a good job and, and, and write a great story that was very compelling that again, I would be proud of. Um, and it's, uh, it's difficult. So, you know, you can, when you're writing nonfiction, you can, uh, you know, you take the facts and you write them and, and they are what they are. Uh, and when you 're writing fiction and you want people to be invested in your characters and you want your characters to to uh, express themselves both internally and externally, you know what they 're thinking and feeling and then how they interact with the people around them, and you want to do it in a really genuine and compelling way um, it 's difficult to do that it 's difficult to do it well, um, certainly for me, so it took. It took a while to refine that form for me. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's much smoother now. I've, I've begun the, the second, the sequel now, and it's going much more quickly.
0: Oh, brilliant. So, um, yeah. what forms does the book come in? Is it hardback, uh, softback, Kindle? Where can we find them?
1: Yep, Kindle, and uh, I've got an exclusive with uh, or the. The book has an exclusive with Amazon right now, um, in the Kindle edition, and there's paperbacks all over. And uh, hardback, I think Barnes and Noble has it uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So yes, it comes in all of the various formats except right now, uh, the, I think the audiobook is—they're uh, shopping around for an audiobook uh, deal. So, so Paco,
0: where can we find you online? Do you have a website or a book Facebook page uh, to check this out?
1: I do. I have both a Facebook page. It's a Paco Kirichi author page, and then uh, I have a website, Lines of the Sky mm-hmm. um, Obviously, Amazon uh, has a, a presence as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And will you be doing signed copies? I will be doing signed copies. Uh, uh, it's an unanticipated uh, demand. I didn't even imagine that people would want that, but I've had enough, uh, enough demand for that that uh, we're going to figure out a mechanism to uh, get people signed copies. Brilliant. And that should be coming shortly. brilliant
0: uh so do you have a copy handy so our viewers can see what their front cover looks like (laughs) yeah there you go awesome well he's on the front there there. looks like a flanker in the visor cover there
1: it is it's a flanker and an alamo so it's it's we're in the short hairs here he's (laughs) an idle. the fighter pilot's at idle with uh chaff and flares coming out hoping to survive this merge but yeah awesome Well, Paco, uh, just before we wrap up, there's a
0: few questions, a personal questions that I ask all our guests. So if you're happy to answer a few of these, uh, we can sign off. Of course. So apart from aviation, do you have any
1: other hobbies? Uh, Well, riding is currently a hobby, but hopefully something more serious. Mm -hmm. Um, I ski a lot, uh, play basketball, but uh, I do fly as a hobby as well. So I have a Yak-50 aerobatic airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a former Soviet uh, ReSIP nine-cylinder uh, radial engine that I go out and fly dogfighting now that I'm, I can't actually get my f- dogfighting fixed with a jet. I have to go out and <laughs> go dogfight some friends in a ReSIP engine. Brilliant. So what is the, it could be a silly question to ask, but what is your favorite
0: aircraft you've managed to fly in your career?
1: Uh, I would say that my favorite aircraft was the Mm F-14, but my favorite mission was the F-5. Flying the F-5 as an adversary was absolutely my favorite mission. And is there one aircraft you wish you could have flown in your career? Oh, yeah. The F-16 as an adversary. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Yeah, that would have been the, the most amazing adversary platform ever. Yeah, especially
0: the old um, navy ones with the big uh, G engine. That would have been apparently it was a rocket
1: ship. That little thing. <laughs> Absolutely, and the ones they have now, you know, the F sixteen A's that they, uh, the Top Gun is flying now, is also. It's not quite as capable, but it's still just an incredible adversary platform. Brilliant. Well, Paco, I just want to say
0: thank you very much for being on the show and sharing your story. Uh, Yeah, I could chat with you for hours, but I think this is going to be a great interview and our viewers are going to enjoy hearing about the A6, your new book and Speed and Angels. So big thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.